All right, so I'm going to try my hardest not to put God in a box today. But, but here he is. We're in a big box, and he's here. So what am I going to do? Anyway, um, good to see you this morning. You guys sounded great, by the way. It was, uh, I could hear you in worship. That's awesome. Good job. Um, this is kind of, I have a couple more announcements, and, and then we'll get into the word. But uh, this is kind of like the week of worship, by the way. Uh, Wednesday night. I'll continue a little study on the the book of Acts, but it's going to be a night of worship and healing on Wednesday night. So I want to encourage you to come out. Uh, Dustin Lau of the Jake Hamilton Band will be leading us that night. It's going to be great. Um, And on Thursday night, Patrick McGarity is going to be leading worship at the Coffee Clatch, which is sponsored by College Church and Fidelis. And so you come out and support Patrick. He's back there, by the way. There he is. Um, that'd be a great night. And then on Friday night, uh, Jake Hamilton is going to be, we're going to be hosting his gathering for his, what he calls uh, sa- uh, voices, voices. So uh, you're invited to that too. So th- th- it's the week of worship. This is your opportunity uh, to, I said this last week. I hope you got it. It's a really good point. You should write it down. But worship is our opportunity to repent back towards God in the area of thankfulness. Worship is not about you being entertained. Worship is about you saying, God, you did amazing things in my life, and I'm going to praise you for them. So worship is our opportunity to repent back to the heart of God through thankfulness. And so you get to do it three times this week. It'll be good. Anyway, so that, you know what, when you go to these things, I want to encourage you to go But when you go, go to and encounter God in that way and praise and worship God in that way. And then it won't be a concert. Then it will be an experience with a loving Heavenly Father. There's a difference. There's a big difference. So anyway, I encourage you to do that. All right, so you're ready to get into putting God in a box? All right, now this is a, we do this. This is our natural inclination, and I'm going to explain why, why we do it. And before we start off, uh, again, last week we talked about, um, you know, God coming through and breaking through in our lives, and these, you know, we'll start small, right? Baby steps, these little micro miracles in your life. Is God doing something in your life? What is it? Are you aware that God is doing something in your life? And I hit on something last week that actually surprised me because I got a lot of feedback from it, and that was the area of Paul's burnout. Because remember in Corinth, Paul burnt out. You know, he he actually had success. And even in the midst of his success, he was burnt out, frustrated, wanted to give up and quit. Have you ever been in that situation where, you know, despite your victory or your failure, you're just done? And he was done. And that one, I got more feedback than anything else. Because what people said is, what? Paul is human? Paul is like me? The fourth member of the Holy Trinity is like me? That was a joke, folks. It was, I mean, Paul is human. He has emotions. He has feelings. You can burn the guy out. Okay. Regardless, he is the most influential individual in Christianity outside of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, he, he did so much to advance the kingdom of God. We wouldn't be sitting here right now if it wasn't for this individual. So he did amazing things. He took amazing risk. He faced 
He faced tribulations and hardships that, that we can't even come close to understand. So he deserves our utmost respect. And I want to kind of continue the theme a little bit. Okay, we, okay, he's, he's a human guy. And um, we're going to look at, at an area. I don't want to say God was, or Paul was putting God in a box. But there was, there was a, we're going to look into Acts chapter 20 today. But there was, there was something that uh, he wasn't quite sure of. And we're going to look at to why. Now, when we put God in a box, when we try to put parameters on what God is, who he is, what the limitations are, how much we can expect to have him involved in our lives, when we begin to do that, we begin to put God in a box. When we begin to mix up God's will and our will, that's when we begin to put God in a box. And it's very, it's very difficult, and it can be a very dangerous and confusing uh, trap to fall into. The, the folks in the video, like, they had some really base desires, right? They wanted God to give them stuff, basically. They wanted to manipulate God to do their will instead of them doing God's will. They had God figured out, you know, one was in a little box, one was in a big box, and they could use him whenever they wanted to. All right? So there, there's those, I'm going to go ahead and say it. There are those types of people, right? Like they're just in the relationship for God to get stuff out of them. Now, then there are people like Paul. Paul's nothing like these folks. Maybe he had some other inclinations or, you know, he talks about, um, you know, he talks about how sin rules his life and he, he does things that he doesn't want to do, right? But he's not quite like these people. He, his convictions, his passion, his drive runs so deep to the core of who he is, he is willing to die for it, all right? All right, so let's get into the word and I'll, hopefully I can illustrate where I'm going and how Paul is more like us than we could possibly imagine. Um, we're going to start Acts chapter 20. We're going to go to verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Okay, for those of you doing the Acts thing, who's the we? Luke. All right, so the guy that's writing Acts is Luke. Whenever he says we, that means he's, he's hanging out with Paul. He's part, of the, he's part of the crew, you know? He's one of the guys. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking till midnight. So you think I talk a lot. You'd be thankful. Kept talking till midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eustace who was sinking into, his, into a deep sleep. Is anybody sleeping right now? That's a great time to poke them. Sleeping into a deep sleep. And Paul talked on and on and on. When he was sound asleep... He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead, all right? See what happens? 
You can't make this stuff up, folks. I mean, I'm serious. You can't make this up. All right. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate after talking till daylight. I hope you see the humor in this. He left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So this is a little lesson. If you're going to fall asleep in church, you might die. And, and, and pastor is going to resurrect you. And then he's going to make you listen to an even longer sermon until daybreak. So it will show you for falling asleep in church. Again, you can't make this stuff up. This is, this is what makes the Bible so real. You know, Paul's like, I'm going to show you, fall asleep on me. I'm going to raise you from the dead and make you listen to me longer. <laughs> All right. It has absolutely nothing to do with putting God in a box, but it put this in your little mental memory because I'm going to reference it at the end. Verse 16, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. All right, Paul is in, he's, in, he's, on, he's on mission. He's in Europe. He's in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey now. And, you know, whether he's in, one of the, whether he's in Turkey or whether he's in Greece, it, it's still Greece. You know, we think of Asia Minor, and we think of Turkey, and we think of, you know, the Ottoman Empire, and we think of, you know, it's a Muslim country. But back then, it was Hellenized. There was, uh, culturally, there wasn't much difference between, you know, a city-state that was on, on, you know, the Turkey border than Athens. So it was all very Greek, all very Hellenized. So very, very similar culturally. And so Paul is on mission. And as you, if you were following us the past few Sundays, you know that Paul was headed up. He wanted to make a right turn. He wanted to go further into Asia. But God stopped him via a powerful vision. And the vision was, I want you to make a left turn into Europe. And the vision came from a man from Macedonia and said, come, we need you. We want to hear the gospel message here. So Paul, or God, intervened into Paul's life, broke his will, and said, go left instead of going right. Paul was obedient and did so, right? So now we see Paul very faithful, working very hard to the point of burnout, right? And he had great success. In some of the worst cities on the planet, he had great success, Major world cities, he was able to get breakthrough. And he's thinking to himself, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go to, I'm going to return to my foundation, where I started, where my heart is. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He was a scholar of scholars that was born in Brett, wasn't born in, in Jerusalem, but his education, his, he, was, he was influenced heavily by, by Jerusalem. So he wanted to go back. And we're going to look into why he wanted to go back. His, his initial plan, his initial strategy was to go to Spain. That was his next place he wanted to head. And so, um, all right, let's dig in some more. Now that I'm setting the stage for you. Verse 22. All right. I'm going to read verse 22 in a different version. This is the message version. You could call it the message paraphrase if you want. But I, I like how it comes across. Uh, 22. 
But there is, this is Paul talking, but there is an ur- another urgency before me now. I feel compelled to go to Jerusalem. I am completely in the dark about what's going to happen when I get there. I do know that it won't be any picnic, for the Holy Spirit has let me know repeatedly and clearly that there are hard times and imprisonment ahead of me. But that, la- that matters little. What matters to me is to finish what God has started, the job that Master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. In other words, grace. Okay? So what's, what's he saying here? In your Bibles, if you have a, if you have a NIV, it's going to say something to the effect that, that I, Paul, was, uh, was compelled by the Spirit or I was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles are going to have a capital S on Spirit. Some of your Bibles are going to have a small s on Spirit. Some of your Bibles are going to be like the message version, and they're not going to say Spirit at all. What am I getting at here? This is going to be, I don't want to say it's controversial, but I'm gonna, I want you to think. I want you to read the Word of God, and I want you to think about how it applies. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, and, and disciplining. So what does this have to tell us about our everyday life? This is a travel journal, for goodness sake. What does Luke and Paul's travel journal have to do? What, what does that have to do about my life? Well, we see Paul. Okay, again, he's unlike these, these clowns that I showed you on video. He's nothing like them. He has a deep-seated conviction and a heart for what he's doing, and he loves people. I have read 20, 21, and 20, actually read it all the way to the end, probably four or five times this week, and I've read it in different translations, trying to get my mind around it. And uh, what surprised me, and hopefully I can get to this too, was what popped out was the issue of spiritual friendship that I didn't expect. And I'll, I'll point that out to you when I, if I get a chance. But what we see, we see Paul, I hate to say that Paul was confused, and I, I don't want to say that Paul wasn't doing God's will, but there is, and this is the word, we're going to get there in a second, there is some confusion here. Now, in the Greek, this point where it says uh, he was compelled by the Spirit or bound by the Spirit, it can mean one of two things. First, it could mean that it was his deep desire and conviction to do what he was doing. He actually, we know from Romans and 2 Corinthians, that Paul had, an, he had a tremendous heart for the church in Jerusalem that was under persecution and that was suffering financially. They, they were poor. Because of their faith, they probably got ostracized from doing business, and they were poor. And Paul was in the richest cities in the world at the time, and he passed the basket and takes an offering for the individuals that sowed spiritual seed that advanced the gospel. And because of what they did, they were now sacrificing for it. And Paul says to these rich folks that he's, that he's ministering, he says to them, he said, look, we're going to pass the basket and I'm going to give it to these people that seeded your faith. 
you actually owe them financially. Interesting, huh? So he takes up this collection for them. So part of his desire, part of his, you know, why he's so dogged to go back to Jerusalem is he wants to personally deliver this money to the poor. So do you see Paul's heart, right? He's not trying to manipulate God like we would. He's not trying to make God do something so he can get blessed. In fact, everything that Paul does is self-sacrificing. In fact, Paul is willing to work his hands physically to the bone so he doesn't take away from the needs of the church. That's why he makes tents. He's unlike anybody else you've ever met besides our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, So we see Paul with this dilemma. Now, I think that Paul's character, his Christian character, is so strong and so intense that he knows himself well enough and he knows the Lord well enough that he's not going to stamp this trip to Jerusalem by playing the God card. He says, I am bound by the Spirit to finish what I think I need to do. And there's, there's debate on this. There's scholarly debate on this. Because he says, I am bound by the Spirit. And he doesn't say, I am bound by the Holy Spirit. He says that the next sentence down. He says, the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to face, I'm going to face hardships and I'm going to face imprisonment. But he doesn't say, the Holy Spirit told me to go to back to Jerusalem. He doesn't play the God card. All right? Okay. So you tracking with me? All right? Okay. Let's continue. Paul instructs his uh, Europeans and Asians before he leaves. Verse 28, he says, Watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember, uh, okay, I'll stop there. What's he saying? He's saying, you guys got, I'm not, I'm leaving. And he continues and says, look, he looks at these people that not only has he ministered to, we will see shortly, he's become friends with them. He's developed a spiritual friendship with them. And he looks at him and he says, look, I'm leaving. In fact, you're never going to see me again. In fact, it, it, it looks like I'm finishing this race pretty soon. And you're never going to see me again. Be careful. Keep your eyes open. Because apostasy is going to come from the outside and it's going to attempt to destroy the church. And apostasy is going to come up from within your very number and it's going to bring in division and dissension and divisiveness. So be careful of that. If you, if you don't guard it, if you don't keep guard, they are going to be wolves and they're going to eat you alive. Very stern warning. But then we see 
uh, we see this, this deep compassion. Like they don't want to let him go. And rightfully so, right? All right. Chapter 21, verse 1, we see what happens. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight. They had to tear themselves away. All right. Paul leaves Europe and Asia Minor, and he returns back to Israel. But he's in his own territory. He's in, he's in the land. He's in the promised land, okay? He is in the promised land. His first connection is at Tyre. Uh, chapter 21, verse 4. Finding the, stu- finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Okay, pay attention. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, have you ever had this dilemma in your life? Where you were so sure of a decision, you were so convinced that you were supposed to do something, and it seems divinely ordered. And... In fact, you're so sure of it, you're willing to play the God card. The Holy Spirit told me that I'm supposed to do this. I wonder if I've ever done that in dating. Let me think. Um, I think I probably tried it once. The Holy Spirit told me I'm supposed to date you. You know what she said? Yeah, I did, do, I did do this once. You know what she said? Well, that's funny because the Holy Spirit told me I'm not going to date you. <laughs> so, Okay, but have you, ever, have you ever done this? Have you ever been on this impasse where... Two individuals play the God card. This is not fun business. This is not, this is not fun stuff. Because somebody's wrong, right? You can't, have, you, can't, you can't have a house divided. You can't have the Holy Spirit telling you to do one thing and then the Holy Spirit tells you to do something different. It's very frustrating to be in this spot. Hopefully we can flesh this out at the end. But this is kind of what's going on. But the difference, the difference I believe is Paul had the character to never play the God card, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to take that interpretation of this, of this verse because he says, I am compelled, I am bound in spirit to deliver this money to the poor and to reconnect with my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a good thing to do. It seems right. You see what I'm saying? It seems like the right thing to do. Tough, huh? The disciples entire. Okay, now get this. This was not Paul's church. This never was one of Paul's churches. He didn't plant this one. As far as we know, he didn't write any letters to this one. He didn't know anybody entire. And so when he pulls up in the boat, begins to fellowship with people, and they say, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem, thus saith the Lord. What's his response? There's no defensiveness here. He doesn't push back. He doesn't say, well, you guys don't. I'm super holy and spiritual. I know what I'm talking about. You guys don't. He doesn't do that. You see this? All right, so what does he do? All right, catch this. But when our time was up, left and continued on our way, all the disciples, these are the ones that said, thus saith the Lord, don't go to Jerusalem. All the disciples and their wives and the children, they accompanied us out of the city and onto the beach, and we knelt 
to pray on the beach. Isn't that a beautiful setting? Usually when people get into God fights, you know, have you ever been into, <laughs> have you ever been into a God fight where you just, you know, God told me, this. okay, do you see this? These people, Paul and the disciples, they didn't agree. But they hit their knees on the sand and they prayed together. That's amazing to me. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and we returned home. All right? On to the next city. Verse 8. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied it to his own hands and feet, and with it said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind their owners to this belt, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. All right? So what... What some people assume, too, what's implied in the text is that, is that Philip's four you know, virgin prophetess daughters, that they were saying, you shouldn't go either. Don't go to Jerusalem. And then they have this prophet that comes in from Judea or possibly Jerusalem. Sometimes those are interchangeable. And he says, don't go. You're gonna, you're gonna, things are, bad things are going to happen to you. Bad things are going to happen to you if you go, and they will hand you over to the Gentiles. Right? All right. How, what's his response? When we heard this, we and all the people pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Who's the we? Luke. Luke and these other companions said, don't do it, Paul. Don't do it. Don't do it. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Interesting, huh? What does Paul not do? He doesn't play the God card. He says, why are you breaking my heart? I am willing to do this. I'm willing to die. It's the right thing to do. But he doesn't say God told me to do it, does he? Interesting, huh? All right. After this, we got up and we went to Jerusalem. Okay, why is that little point important? All right. Everybody knows. Don't go out. Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. In fact, don't go, or you're gonna bad things are gonna happen to you. You're gonna get you're gonna get beaten up. You're gonna be thrown in prison. You're gonna be handed over to the Gentiles. And then this is so sweet. We go to Jerusalem. The very person that tried to dissuade him from going. Luke was part of the he was part of the people that were speaking into Paul's life. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Ah, all right. You're, looks like you're going. I guess I'm going to. That's friendship. That's spiritual friendship. That says, all right, even though it doesn't feel right in my spirit, 
you are my friend, and I will go with you no matter what happens. That's spiritual friendship. And so Luke goes with him. And I'm going to tell the rest of the story just for sake of time. Paul enters Jerusalem. He enters the temple. He's got his, well, he, he connects with the people first. He connects with the church. This is kind of, dis, this is kind of uh, disappointing in some sense. He, he connects with the church. He goes to James's house, one of the original apostles, and doesn't really say what happens there. He gives a report of his missionary journey. He said, I, I've given the gospel message of grace, of, of, of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. They received it. And the Jews who I, who I went to and ministered to in the, all these world cities, they received it. And do you know what the church's response was to him? Well, they did praise God and they gave God glory. They, praise God, Paul, that's awesome. But we also have reports that you're telling people that the law isn't important anymore. How, what a bummer. So from the very church that he's trying to support financially, the very church that birthed his ministry, they're saying, look, Paul, this, you're doing great work here, but you're telling people that Moses isn't important. And Paul's saying, I, that's not true. I'm just, I'm just saying you don't have to get circumcised anymore. I'm just saying you don't have to be bound to the law. You're, you've been set free in, gra in, in grace. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That's all I'm saying. But see, the problem was the Jews in the Christian church, they were so steeped into the rules the regulations, the Torah, that they themselves had put God in a box, even Jesus himself. And they said, rules. This is the parameters that all these Gentiles need to fall into. They, yes, they need to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they also got to follow the, 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 the Torah. They have to get circumcised. And so this, is, this was his reaction. This was his response. I'm sure it was very frustrating, and, and I'm sure he was delusioned, disillusioned with his own people. He goes to the temple. He's trying to make things, right? He's like doing politics. You know, he's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll do this sacrifice with your guys, and you can read more about that. But basically, he goes to the temple. He's got his little Greek buddy following him around, and the whole city just blows up. They're like, Okay, this is the guy that's causing all these problems. And look, he's dragging this unclean little guy around with him into the temple and making all kinds of problems. This is not acceptable. And they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. They, they don't, they're, you know, there is no trial. There is no, they're not going to bring him in front of the Sanhedrin. They want to rip him apart right then and there. There's three attempts to murder him. They actually put together a death squad to kill him. And the only thing that saves him, ironically is Rome. Is Rome. It's just big chaos. And so the soldiers come in. You know, they're trying to calm everything down. They don't want a riot. They don't want, they don't want chaos. So they, 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 you know, they do what Romans do best. They, you know, they suppress everything. And they get a hold of Paul. And they say, what is going on here? You know, these people are saying this. And he said, look, this is who I am. And they're like, okay, let's get the whip. And before they're about ready to whip him, they said, okay, but I'm also a Roman citizen. Don't, don't whip me. And they're like, 
oh, you serious? So now they got this, they got this guy. They, they, they would love just to, to put him under the carpet or, or kill him quietly, but he's a Roman citizen and he has rights. And they know it. And so the great irony is it's the Roman Empire that saves Paul, saves him from the religious leaders of the time. Isn't that funny how God can use a secular environment to save you from your own people? It's, it was just, irony is all over this. He's imprisoned in Jerusalem. It's actually too hot for him to be in Jerusalem. They ship him back up to Caesarea, lock him up there for years. He pleads his case before you know, the mighty governor Felix, and then he pleads his case to King Agrippa. And the whole time, the whole time he is here, there's no record in Luke of the apostles coming to his side. Okay, if, you, if you're going through Luke with us, you know that Luke, or Acts, if you're going through Acts with us, you know that Luke is detailed-oriented. Like he says stuff like, Thucydides got in the boat and went with us. And that's all you hear about the guy. Right? Just random facts. But there is no mention of Peter coming to his side or the rest of the apostles. He doesn't get backed in this. They just kind of leave him. Now, I'm kind of reading into the text. Maybe I'm forcing the text. I'm just pointing out what's not there. And in my mind, that is yelling something. And so he's alone. And he's now facing, you know, secular people. And the whole time that he is in the promised land, not a single miracle. In other places where he's been imprisoned, angels shook the gates and, and they, they fell off. And, you know, he was able to, to do things. And there were healings, mass healings. You know, the... You know, that kid that was playing video games all night and fell asleep in church and fell off the three-story building? That was his last miracle. That's the point. That was his last miracle. Interesting, huh? So he doesn't see what he's doing seems right. It's like the right thing to do. But we don't see God coming through in those little micro-miracles like we see in his other missionary journeys. No healings, no signs and wonders, no breakthroughs, no salvations either. He has an audience with the greatest rulers of the world. He gives his best gospel pitch to Felix and Agrippa, and it comes close, but he doesn't seal the deal. They don't get saved. There, there's no fruit in Jerusalem. And by the time he wins his court case with Agrippa, he's like, he's like all right, I, obviously I'm being treated unjustly, I'm going, and I'm a Roman citizen, I'm going to plead my case to Caesar. Here's the great irony. God puts him back to Rome. And he spends the rest of his life in jail under house arrest. The beauty of under house arrest, he's able to have people come to his house. So he has like a little home church ministry going on. 
So, do I dare say that Paul wasn't in God's will? I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't know. But I think that maybe Paul had option A and another option A. <laughs> but what we do know is the kingdom of God wasn't being expressed in Jerusalem when he was there. You know, he felt like he had to do the right thing and go and serve the poor. He felt like he had to go back and tell his Jewish brothers and sisters about the grace that the unbelieving Gentiles received. He felt like he needed to justify his position as an apostle because a lot of them didn't believe him. This is what he was up against. All right, in your, in your bulletin, in your out, I have an outline for you, and hopefully I'll just, I'm going to blow through it as fast as I possibly can. Why do we put God in the box? Again, there's two reasons. One, we, we think that we're doing the right thing, and maybe we're not. And I think that this was Paul's case. He was, he was very dedicated. He was willing to die. But God didn't want Paul to die in Jerusalem. He wanted him to die in Europe. But then there's the other, then there's these, these guys that we saw on, on TV, all right? So first thing, we use God to run from God. Have you ever done this? I, I've talked about this before, and this theme is not going to go away. We're going to be talking about it again and again. But our, our inclination, our, the trap that we'll fall into, is that we will use God to run from God. What does that mean? That means that maybe God wants you to stay at home, sit around the table and have a meal with your family so you can actually connect with your children, carry on a conversation with them, know what's going on in their life, giving them the opportunity to share what happened in school. But we don't want to deal with that. We'd rather stick our head in the sand. In order for us to get around that responsibility of being good parents, we'll go to church instead. Because that's spiritual. And then we feel good about it. You can't do that for very long without the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, son, daughter, you need to pay attention to your home life. Quit running from me by going to church. That's, That's tough, huh? All right. One of the classics on that, 1 Samuel 15, 22. The Lord does not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord is better to obey than it is to sacrifice. All right. Next thing we want to do, and this is, this is the part of the human condition. This is a part of who we are. We want to maintain control. We put God in his box because not only do we have to have control of our life, but we have to have control of God too. We have to tell him exactly what he is to do and where he is to be and what areas of our life that we are going to allow him to come into and what areas that he has to stay out of because we still maintain control. What does that look like? Well, point A uh, we have this tendency to use God to judge other, other people's actions. All right, 
back to like having God fights and God conflicts and playing God cards and stuff like that. You know, one area that, that seasoned Christians, can, a trap they can fall into is that they will use God to judge other people and do it unjustly. All right, what do I mean by this? Um, let's say all kind. let's say I had like a Murphy's Law kind of day. Have you ever had a Murphy's Law day? Where every, you feeling me? Where everything that could go wrong does go wrong, right? And um, I, this happened a while ago. I don't remember specifically the situation, but I was, I was having a bad day. <laughs> and somebody from the church says, man, brother, you must have some sin in your life, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll, we will do this. We will see the misfortunes of other people and say, oh, God's not in it. I, I knew that they were spiritual losers or else they wouldn't be going through this situation. They wouldn't be having this hard time in their life. Because what we're doing is we're judging their spirituality when we have no right to do so. It happened to Paul. Okay, so the kid falling out of the window and him raising him from the dead, last miracle. But there was one more. After he left Israel and crashed his ship, talk about having a bad day, you know, crashed his ship, shipwrecked on the, on the European island of Malta. There was like these local guys. They say, man, you're a loser, Paul. You must have murdered somebody or you got the wrath of God on your life. God must not love you. You must have done something really bad in this life or, or your past previous life. He's got this snake hanging off of him, this venomous snake hanging off of him. And they're like, see, look, I told you. I told you you're a spiritual loser. Look, that snake bit you. Now you're going to die. You're going to get what you deserve. And he shakes it off. This is what we have to do sometimes. When even your own, sometimes you have to fight your brothers and sisters before you can fight your giants. Um, whenever somebody is saying, you've got sin in your life, you're just not reading your Bible enough, you're not praying enough, you must not love Jesus anymore, God's, you know, whatever. It, it's evident, right? Sometimes we just need to shake that stuff off because it's a lie. You know, if anybody, due to their circumstances in life, if anybody was a spiritual loser, it would be Paul. All kinds of horrible things happened to this guy. He got beat up everywhere he went. He was broke half the time. He got put in jail all the time. He had malaria. He had all kinds of bad things happening to him. So if we were to, if we were to use that to judge him, it would be highly illegal for us to do so. And that was probably his experience his whole life. Thank God he was faithful, huh? All right. B, we use God to justify our own actions. All right, so, um, again, I'm doing something spiritual. God never asked me to do it, but I'm still going to do it anyway. And so I can, I can, you know, do this, and I can justify what I'm doing. It makes me look good in the sight of others. The next point kind of fleshes that out a little bit more. C, uh, the supernatural entitlement syndrome. I made this up, by the way. Um, 
supernatural entitlement syndrome. It's, a little, it's, that, it's that part where that guy says, you know, I got pulled over and I pulled God out of the box and he made everything okay. And then he made the cop apologize to me because I'm so special. Right? What it is is the, the ability to say the rules don't apply to me because I'm God's special little anointed one. And as a matter of fact, he, he, he breaks me out of jail all the time because I'm, I'm a child of grace. It's called cheap grace. We'll get into that later. But just thinking that, uh, that you can just say, oops, my bad. I'm just going to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. It's a spiritually entitlement attitude. It's extremely dangerous. It's a dangerous for you and your spiritual life and your spiritual walk. It's also dangerous for the ones that, are, that you're around. So be careful. Just because, you know, look, we all have spiritual gifts. Just because I have the spiritual gift of healing doesn't mean that I can live like hell on the weekends. I could. I'm telling you, I can. I can, I can pray for the sick and see a dramatic miracle, and then I can live like hell on the weekends. And I can come back Sunday and I can do it again. Irresponsible. It gives me this pride that I don't deserve dangerous. I'm putting God in a box. He's there to serve me. I don't serve him. Do you see that? All right. How do you, how can you tell if you've put God in a box? Okay, real quick. You live two different lives. We, we saw this in the video. You know, you got God in the box when you want to be spiritual, and then when you don't want to be spiritual, you put him away so he doesn't see the bad things that you do. It is, it is a phenomenon in our culture today to have a secular lifestyle and a, and a sacred lifestyle. Maybe you don't deal with it. Your kids do. The youth of America, the young generation do. They don't have any problem. Carpent, car, I can't say that word. They don't have any problem putting things in two different categories. I'm going to party. I'm going to go to this college party all night long. Sunday morning I go to church. Everything's fine. Jesus loves me. They don't have a problem living the sinful life and then living the sacred life. You can't do that for very long. You can't do that. That is you putting God in a box. So you can't live two lives. You can't have a dual life. What it will, you'll end up being two different people. You'll, live a, you'll have a schizophrenic lifestyle, and, it, and it's, you'll start having conversations with yourself. Anyway. Number two is you're not a happy camper. When you, when you put God in a box, when you begin to tell him what to do and what he can go into and what he can't go into, uh, you become unhappy. If you're, a, if you're a grumpy camper, you've put God in a box. If you can't experience joy in your life, you've got God in a box. Let me see if I can flesh that out. I'll go on the next point. This will illustrate a little bit better. You are further away from God. All right, let's say you have, you have a difficult decision to make. They both seem right. They both seem like the right thing to do. I've got, I've got option A, and then I have another option A. I don't know which is the right one to do. Now, let's say you know, you've got some issues where maybe it's pride issue, or maybe you want to please other people, so you choose this option A. 
because deep down inside, it does feed a need that you have, right? So you will know that you have made a mistake. You will know that you are not in God's will. You will know that God is, you put God in a box because when you made that decision, you're further away from God. Like the intimacy with the Lord is gone. Your affections toward God has diminished. Your affections for other people has diminished. It seemed like the right thing to do, but I'm, not only am I not happy, I can't see God in the little things. Hmm? When we are in God's will, you will see God in the little things in addition to the big things. You will see color. When you pray for your needs, hummingbirds will show up. When you, when you pray, God, I got this situation. I'm having a conflict with my wife. God, could you get us to communicate? And all of a sudden, your wife starts communicating to you. That's God in these little things. When you make a decision that seems right, you're not happy, and you're further away from God, well, guess what? If there's confusion, well, God's not the author of that, is he? Okay. If you go to this and you make, okay, God, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to make decision A. I don't understand it, but it's your will, isn't it, Lord? Holy Spirit, you're telling me to do this. I'm going to do it. And it seems like the worst decision you've ever made. Everything goes wrong. You're broke. You're hungry. No one likes you. People yell at you all the time. You're alone. But your heart for God has increased. Your intimacy has increased. Like, you took that step, and he took ten steps towards you. It doesn't make logical sense what you did, but that peace that transcends all understanding has fallen upon you. And once you have understand that peace that transcends all understanding, that will guide your life. Okay, I got to keep going, don't I? All right, number, uh, this is not fun. Number four, you, you, you put God in the box by using other things to dull the pain of life. When you say, God, I, I, got, a, I got this problem, but I'm not going to let you in. I'm going to drink instead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dull this pain. I don't want to deal with this problem. I'm going to drink instead. Okay, drink and substance abuse, that seems like a pretty extreme thing. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I don't know what percentage drink in here, but it doesn't matter. Because you will use other things to, to, uh, to dull the pain. You will eat to dull the pain. You will, you will immerse yourself into escapism activities to keep God in his box. You'll go to the movies a lot. You'll watch too much TV. You'll, you'll go to concerts too much. When all of a sudden you realize that there's that problem, there's that ugly thing that, that I choose to dull instead of face. And when you choose to dull the pain of life, you also choose to dull the joy of life. You can't come back in here on Sunday morning and worship the way that you should because you've dulled the pain, and when you dull the pain, you also dull the joy. You can't have one without the other. 
So be courageous. If you see yourself dulling pain, avoiding conflict, avoiding situations, you're not letting God in. You're not letting him do his work. Number five, you're just disillusioned. I could, I'll just, and number six, you make, you're making a lot of excuses. You begin to you make excuses about everything that's wrong in your life. You're, 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 you're blaming your boss. You're blaming your parents. You're blaming your situation. You're blaming your education. You're, you're, you're blaming the president. You're making all these excuses in life. You're not taking any responsibility at all. And what you're doing, again, you're boxing God in that situation. Um, how do you know that you're boxing him? Are you thankful? Again, once you start making excuses, you're not thankful for what God has done. All right, if I could have the band and the ushers to come up to the front. And in closing, I have a question for you. How big is your God? Do you have him regulated to this building, this big black box we call Granite Creek? Is this the only place that you encounter God? All right, this is even going to get even tougher. Do you have a Bible-shaped God box? Meaning that all your experience of God is only from the Bible, which is good, but you see, he wants, he doesn't belong in this box. He belongs in your heart and he belongs in your life. And if you really read this book, you realize it's Pandora's box and you've got to let him out. He has to be a part of your everyday life. We tend to put him in this box. But if your only experience of a loving God and of the supernatural and of the breakthroughs in life, if it's only relegated to the scriptures, you're not reading it right and you're not living it right. Some of us need to get God out of the Bible and into our hearts and into our lives. That's what the word of God is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. God, forgive us for telling you what to do and where you're allowed to be and, and boxing you up and using you when we want to use you and ignoring you when we want to do bad things. God, I pray that you would be an evident part of our lives this week. God, we know we're not perfect. We know we're not Mother Teresa or Jesus, but God, give us the courage to be honest with ourselves when we decide to box you. Forgive us of that sin, Lord. You're much bigger than any box that we can construct. Your grace is sufficient. Your, your grace changes everything. Your grace changes everything. Father, I thank you for this offering. I thank you for the sacrifice that has been put into the basket for the poor, that has been put into the basket for this church the advancement of the kingdom of God. Pray that you would bless those that have sacrificed even when it was painful. We love you, God. Bless us this week.